0: And she is going to read all of Revelation chapter 1 because it's beautiful and wonderful and glorious. And we are finishing our series through Scripture. Bible... Okay, question. Sorry, Kim. Just because I want to give Silas a hard time. Is a year, a calendar year, or is it 365 days? Or both. Because if it's 365 days, we are accomplishing this in under a year. Because it's like 300... Boom. Okay, Silas. So, for you giving me grief bible in the air finishing it today thank you kim here's the best part revelation one thank you.
1: Need to, you stand here. good morning the revelation of jesus christ which god gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place he made it known by sending his angel to his servant john who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne— And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us, has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and to Father, and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, I fell at his feet, as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Wow. Father God, thank you. Um, Thank you that we've made it this far. Thank you for this journey of the last year and for the dedication of Anthony and John in their pursuits to bring us closer to you, be more aware of you in knowledge, in faith, and in perseverance as we read through your word Lord, God, today is the day that we learn how it ends. And really for us, Lord, it's a beginning. So, Lord, I just thank you for this last year, and I praise you for the year to come, and I praise the teaching today, and may it just draw us closer to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank
2: you.
0: <laughs> so, I wanted to, um, I forgot about this until just now, that uh, you know, we've been alliterating every title. And so today's title is the end of it all. Amen. Like it do every single one except today. No title, transcendence, tribulation, and tears. Uh, no more, right there. Cody with the fancy font for the new year. Look at you, bud. Nice Transcendence, tribulation, and tears. No more tears. There is, uh, no book in the bible that can be encapsulated in 35 to 50 minutes and this one is no different so that's the direction that we are heading and i want to start with an apology because historically when it comes to me and eschatology uh, i have been less than no not even less than i have not shown love around it that was demonstrated a couple weeks ago when i taught through second peter and got on a soapbox and so i start by just saying I'm sorry. God has used his people to uh, speak to me in that, confront me, and show me some things that are unholy. And so I'm beginning with repentance. I want to, in this season of my life and going forward, abandon angst and anger and frustration with how things have been taught and lead with greater love. And I thank you all for your patience with me in that process.
2: so let's let the
0: healing begin let the healing begin okay uh as we embark on revelation we are going to put our cards on the table everybody is shaped by somebody right and whenever we come to any book of the bible we are shaped and influenced by people. And so for me, for us, major influences around this teaching, Eugene Peterson's book, Reverse Thunder, Richard Bauckham has a a short but dense book called The Theology of the Book of Revelation, which is one of the, the best and most highly recommended theological works on it. The Bible Project, obviously, we as we've sent out those videos week after week, as well as Echoes of Exodus by Robertson Wilson, Old Testament usage of the New Testament by G.K. Beale, you know, a little 1,100-page book that Anthony has read through, um, and so that's our cards on the table and the approach that we are taking with this book. This book is eschatological, which is a fancy theological word that simply means last study. It's a Greek word that is compressing those two things together. And that's what we're looking at today.
2: Yes, we're looking at uh, eschatology, the end of all things. And our goal in in this sermon, as we've already mentioned, it's not going to be exhaustive. It's impossible. And so it would be kind of foolish for us to even imagine that we would attempt to do such a thing. So what we've, um, what we're going for, what our our goal is, is to give you something that we wish we would have received the first time we ever were introduced to the book of Revelation.
0: It's, it's a sermon I wish my youth pastor would have preached. He was my youth pastor.
2: (laughs) This guy, this guy. Yeah, we're never going to get this done. Um, (laughs) <laughs> yeah but it I mean sincerely it, it's it's not everything and, it, and it's certainly not it's probably not answers that you hope to have a, as we kind of navigate it but I, it really is from our hearts it's it's what we would have hoped or at least I would have hoped to understand about the book the very first time I was introduced to it so that's what we hope to give you today and uh, and. and And the reason we're taking this approach is because there's been kind of two general approaches to the book throughout, um, you know, the course of history and, you know, and and especially recent history. And um, actually, in in this really big, dense book, Christian Theology, uh, Millard Erickson coins phrases to help us understand those perspectives. And he uses the word eschatomania and eschatophobia eschatomania and eschatophobia. And, and, and it means uh, es- the, the, the study of eschatology, the study of uh, end times is everything. And that's all we need to talk about and needs to be discussed at every gathering. And there needs to be um, specific time, um, you know, kind of carved out for all the time. But all, and that's one perspective. But there's also uh, another perspective, an eschatophobia, which is, I don't want to talk about it at all. And, and, um, and I think these ideas are really true about every core doctrine uh, of Scripture, that God presents us with some really big, beautiful ideas, and, and, and to, in addition to those big, beautiful ideas, they're very complicated. In fact, for thousands of years— Theologians have been writing about these subjects and going back and forth with ideas and thoughts around them. And um, it's really important that when eschatology began to be discussed in, in uh, our modern context, there were these positions taken, this... this um, almost hyper-focus on it or a non-focus of it. And so hopefully we can, you know, thread the needle a little bit and not be extreme, but also, um, you know, not be, you know, so aloof that we're like, well, it's going to happen however it's going to happen. I used to tell people I'm a I'm a pan-millennial, we'll just see how it pans out. Well, that's just, that's lazy uh, student, is, what, is what, that, that's what that, that's how that um, interprets. That's what that is in the Greek? In the Greek, that's lazy, <laughs> lazy student, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, Millard Erickson, he's, he's really wisely, and he gently warns in his book on Christ, uh, Christian theology um, Somewhere between the two extremes of preoccupation with and the avoidance of eschatology, we must take our stance. For eschatology is neither an unimportant and optional option, uh, uh, opt, Why can't I read that? Optional topic. Nor the, uh, the sole subject of significance and interest, interest to the Christian. And so, uh, again, we're giving you perspectives. Not answers, but perspectives today. And here are the four major perspectives around eschatology that people have been kind of conversing over, battling over for a little bit of time now. And I'll give them to you really quickly. Number one, one way to look at the the Bible is purely from a futuristic perspective, meaning it holds views that most of the events described are in the future. Likely to come to fruition at the end of age, at the end of age, and and, and most of the events that you're reading in Revelation are kind of clustered together, and they're going to happen in the future. A second perspective is the preterist uh, perspective, which, which means that the events described in the book are taking place during the time of the writing, and the events are therefore in the past. That's a preterist perspective. The historical perspective holds that the events described were in the future at the time of writing, but refer to matters destined to take place throughout the history uh, within the church. And so, so therefore, instead of looking solely to the future for their occurrences, we should also search for them within the pages of history and consider whether some of them may be coming to pass even right now. So you can see how their major shifts. And then, of course, the fourth and final perspective holds that these events described are not to be thought of in a time sequence, but they refer to truths that are timeless in nature, not to singular historical occurrences. Now, those four perspectives, obviously, they're very different from one another. I think, I fall into the camp that I feel like when you read Revelation, you're perhaps um, encountering all those perspectives at one time or another. Um, that, you may like that or not, but that's, that's kind of what I've seen as I've, as I've entered into the fray. But as you can see, those four perspectives are held by Christians all around the world, which is why we have so, such differences in our doctrine, especially uh, when it comes to eschatology.
0: So you can see from those approaches why Revelation, and even in the reading of chapter 1, is one of, if not the most beautiful, complex, and um, difficult to get a grasp on books in the entire Bible. And the reason is the type of literature that it is. It's not simply an epistle. um, It's not simply a gospel and a report of things that happened. It's considered apocalyptic literature, which, again, in the Greek means to reveal or uncover. Here's a really dense uh, theological quote from JJ Collins for you. Apocalypse is a genre of revelatory literature with a narrative framework in which a revelation is mediated by an otherworldly being to a human recipient disclosing a transcendent reality which is both temporal insofar as it envisages eschatological salvation and spatial insofar as it involves another supernatural world. Thank you for coming to seminary today. Simply put, (laughs) it means this. It is a pulling back of the curtain to see what is really going on in the world, but unseen to the human eye. You see that in verse 1 and 2, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known how by sending his angel To his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So we have historically, as the human race, struggled to understand why. Here's my three theories behind why we struggle to understand and interpret Revelation. Number one is this. We have a lack of familiarity with the Old Testament and the first century world. And there's no shame around that. It's just simply we are 2,000 years later than when this was originally written. We're in a completely different time and context. So what that means is we have our work cut out for us if we're going to understand it appropriately. Mm -hmm. The Old Testament for the first century Jewish Christian people was what I... I said this on Christmas Eve, it was ubiquitous, it was there, and, and I was talking with Anthony this week, we don't have anything equivalent, we have no, like, central theme literature that that drives us as a people, that we're all familiar with, I'm like, the best I can come up with, oh, Declaration of Independence, Bill of Rights, but we don't really know that, Gettysburg of Draft, like, once it goes past four score and seven years ago, we're out, like, i <laughs> We know it happened. It was probably important. But what that meant for our nation, we don't have that. Green eggs and ham, yeah, maybe a little closer. Good night, moon, some of those types of things. We are unfamiliar with this world. But again, since we did the Bible in less than a year, 364 days, Silas, this problem should be solved for all of us. But what John is doing for first century readers is re orienting them in the world that they were in with the scriptures they were familiar with right. depending on how you count it there are between 400 to thousand different references to the old testament in the book of revelation and it's between 400 and thousand because interpreters vary on what is a direct correlation or not again i was studying with anthony this week and last and he goes oh yeah this reminds me of this quote it was on page 1082 of this book And G.K. Beale says this. It's generally recognized that Revelation contains more Old Testament references than does any other New Testament book. Although past attempts to tally the total amount have varied, the variation in statistics is due to the different criteria employed to determine the validity of an Old Testament reference and the fact that some authors include echoes and parallels of a very general nature together with allusions and citations.
2: That's good stuff.
0: Yeah, it's nice, right? Reads thick books. I like this quote from Eugene Peterson that says... Similar thing. John has his favorite books of scripture, Ezekiel, Daniel, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Isaiah, and Exodus, but there's probably not a single canonical Old Testament book to which he does not make at least some allusion. The statistics post a warning. No one has any business reading the last book who has not read the previous 65 John does not merely repeat Scripture. It is recreated in him. He does not quote Scripture in order to prove something. Rather, he assimilates Scripture so that he becomes someone. So we struggle because we have a lack of familiarity with the Bible as a whole. Again, problem solved for Union Church because of the last year. I joke. Mm The second reason we struggle is because there's a glut of speculation and fervor around it as we already addressed, and this is part of church history. If you want a fun Wikipedia page, go to uh, predictions of the end throughout church history, and there's a whole Wikipedia page that's dedicated to all of the various predictions of when the end would come throughout history, and I read it, and I go, oh, okay, so the last 30, 40 years of my lifetime, is not unusual completely within church history. You see all sorts of pastors and theologians and people saying, this is going to be the end because of what's going on in the world. And there's been speculation and fervor all around it. And then finally, though it's written to a first century audience, it also deals with the future. Again, you see that in chapter one, things that are to take place. And I don't know about you, but I don't have... A crystal ball. And so I don't know what the future holds for myself, let alone any of us, let alone human history. So those things that are soon to take place, we just don't necessarily know. But because we have a lack of familiarity with the Old Testament and the first century world, because there's been all this speculation and fervor around, because we don't know what the future holds we can struggle with this book so i want to present to you a little bit of a grid of how to approach revelation and eschatology in general it's four things first emphasize the savior and salvation and minimize speculation around it all secondly eschatology must be connected to the entirety of the story that's what john does in his book and all the writers of scripture do they are showing the connectivity of the story Third, eschatology is meant to provide clarity and eliminate confusion. How do we know if this is happening? Well, if it's promoting courage, holiness, faithfulness, and love in your life and in the world, you go, okay, I think we're on to something. If you have fear and idolatry and conjecture and arguments and anger around it all, I'd go, maybe we need to take a step back around that all, and I say that looking into a mirror. If there's any vision of the future that the Bible gives, it is to root us and reorient us in the present. And so that's the rails that we're hoping to stay on today as we continue into this.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and, and so speaking on one of those, um, in terms of emphasizing the Savior, not only does that, is that the story of Scripture, but that is the story of Revelation. And that's what you read this morning. We read about a person and his work. And we are called to see someone um, magnific- magnificently glowing in the midst of the church. Uh, there, there again, we are, we, are, we are drawn to Jesus Christ himself. The first chapter is aimed at giving us clarity and centering us on Christ. And, that, and that's where we need to be, begin the book. And guess what? That's also how it ends. It ends... Uh, with him, it begins with him, it ends with him. The story has always been uh, about him. But to uh, give us this really big and accurate and perhaps unfamiliar perspective and vision of Jesus, I want to reread verses 13 through 16 out of Revelation uh, chapter 1. Because it says in the midst, and this is who Jesus is, in, in And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Uh, In the coming weeks, we're going to cover the letters to the seven churches in the first portion of Revelation. And uh, what you'll notice, and and we'll cover it in detail when we get there, but you'll notice that to each church, Uh, Jesus wants the church to see these specific perspectives around Jesus um, up close and in 3D. He wants them to see Jesus in these specific ways. And so if that's the admonition for those churches, then it must be the admonition for the church that exists today as well. Um, Like I said, we'll look at that... um, you know, coming in the in the next several weeks, but what we need to keep in our mind and our heart right now is the vision that we have in that first chapter, and it's this, Jesus seen in his transcendence, and Jesus seen, set in the midst of his churches, in the midst of his church, and I think critical and often forgotten is that in this book uh, that is in particular to these churches, and in, in to a particular churches in, in a particular time, um, like, just like the rest of the Bible, we have to remember this book in context. In other words, you know, some people look at this book and they, and they say chapters one through three is, is one segment and section, and then chapters 4 through 22 are another segment. But really, they're, be, they're, they're meant to be held in congruence. When we read the books of the Bible, they're always addressed to a particular people in a particular time. And my question is, why would that change for the book of Revelation? Why would God just all of a sudden shift that story even though it continues in congruence with The rest of those books. So um, here's a quote to drive that point home, and then I'll turn it back over to John. But Richard Baccham, he says, the effect of John's vision, one might say, is to expand his reader's world both spiritually into heaven and temporarily into the eschatological future, or to put it another way, to open their world to divine transcendence. The bounds which Roman power and ideology set to the reader's world are broken open, and that world the scene is seen as open to the greater purpose of its transcendent creator and Lord. It is not that the here and now are left behind in an escape into heaven or the eschatological future, but that the here and now look quite different when they are open to transcendence. The world seen from this transcendent perspective in apocalyptic vision is a kind of new symbolic world into which John's readers are taken as his artistry creates it for them. But really, it is not another world. It is John's readers' concrete day-to-day world seen in heavenly and eschatological perspective. And so seeing
0: transcendence, God being transcendent, is supposed to do something in a soul. And I think what's often lost is we have become so familiar with the cliches of God's in control, God's sovereign. But we can, just because of the the busyness of life or the troubles of life or whatever it may be for you that gets your eyes off of that, we can lose sight of that. But when you see... And actually let the truth of God's transcendence seep into your soul that does something in an individual. Just on the phone last night with somebody, tough time. And and to pause long enough to go, God is in control. And and I don't know how this thing's going to pan out. And I don't know how this is all going to turn out. And it could be just horrible and rough all the way through. But I do know this truth, that Jesus is ruling and reigning, and he has us in his care. That's to do something. And that's what John was doing for these first century readers and listeners to this letter is tribulation and trouble and trial and the temperature of the church was rising, as pressure was closing in on them. And how are God's people supposed to act? How are God's people supposed to respond? And John's saying, see God on the throne in worship him in the midst of that. Mm -hmm. And that's the call to them again and again and again. See this God who is faithful and who will be faithful to the end. And again, John goes to great lengths throughout this book, giving signs and symbols and images that all point to that reality and their calling. And again, for most Western Christians, this isn't necessarily the perspective we've held on this book because we see the church is somewhat absent from all the happenings of this. But it's interesting because again, if you look at the connectivity of the story, and even in uh, verse, uh, where was it that John says he is the partner with them in the tribulation? It just as Kim was reading, it made me go, "Huh, okay." The church isn't absent necessarily from the trouble and trial throughout church history. The church has endured again with varying degrees of intensity, trial and trouble. And, and the task is to keep our eyes. On Jesus who Jesus gave the illusion of birth pangs which aren't necessarily as I've been told predictable um, which aren't necessarily as I've been told um, all the same and again I'm taking other people's word for this but what the first century church was facing is that Nero uh, was this new ruler new authority new beast type figure And again, we aren't going to get into all of the theories and disagreements around the tribulation, around the timeline, around the bowls, the judgment, the witnesses, but what all faithful interpretation lands on is that this book was given for a people in a place to be pressed towards Jesus, then and now. And so you have in this book seals and trumpets and bowls and judgments. And again, there's varying theories on if this is a literal sequence, is it? Some say so. Is it in the past? Some say so. Is it in the present? Some say so. Is it in the future? Some say so. You want to talk about theories? Let's get coffee. Yes. And if you don't, well, let's get coffee anyways and talk about something else. <laughs> the, the, the Bible Project gives this view or perspective, more of a kind of Russian nesting doll situation, showing and echoing the judgments of Egypt in the Exodus. And there's themes, and and we'll get into some of the, uh, again, echoes of Exodus all throughout this book, from three different time periods and perspectives that all amplifies towards this last battle and judgment of Last battle being Armageddon. Again, I want to emphasize there's faithful Jesus followers all across the spectrum of interpretation around all of that. And there's some unfaithful perspectives too that are ultimately unhelpful. And I think that's where you refer back to the grid. If this is uh, leading God's people towards confusion and fear, we've lost the plot. But ultimately what John again is showing is a transcendent God in the midst of their trials and tribulations that is supposed to do something for these people and something for us. When you see in chapter 1 that God reigns and our lives are meant to be built around that reality, something shifts in our souls. Eugene Peterson puts it this way, The end result of the act of worship is that our lives are turned around. The self is no longer the hub of reality. as Sin seduces us into supposing. And so that would be super easy and simple if it weren't for the three enemies that we've seen all throughout this story of the world, our own flesh, and the devil that's at work in
2: the midst of the world. Mm -hmm. Yes, and obviously um, the book of Revelation is about tribulation. It's about a a terrible time on earth and, again, people's perspectives on it. But Revelation is very consistent in showing that powers, and I think— past, present, and future powers have always been at work in the world and has its effect on the life of the church. Uh, The images that we see in Revelation are uh, pretty imposing. You get dragon, snake, beast, and whore, and I was just thinking, well, you know, something that we know but we don't always um, mention is that the devil really is in the details. And when you read Revelation, you see the devil is actually in the details of of the world. And I think, and and it's not a popular thought that the church has to settle in their heart that the future for a Christian is filled with pain and suffering. Now, is that pain and suffering included in that, uh, in this eschatological scheme? Well, I don't know but there's many perspectives and there's good arguments around all of them but but the one thing we can all agree on is that we can't escape tribulation we can't escape that even though we would love to we would love to ex- escape escape suffering all of us would sign up for that but if any of us have lived long enough you know it's inevitable you cannot a- a- avoid it and in terms of uh, the persecution that we see on the pages of Revelation, we have to understand that this is consistent with Christianity. The persecution of God's people. Paul says it this way to Timothy. Indeed, all who desire to live, go- uh, live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Like, it's guaranteed. Uh, Peter says it this way. We just read it. Um, Don't be surprised at the fiery trial that has come upon you. Um, Jesus says, if they persecuted me, they'll, they're going to persecute you. So so all throughout Scripture, it's consistent in the story that we should expect this. If we're going to be faithful witnesses to Christ, we should ex- expect some pushback. It should, it's not going to be easy. And that's just true. The question is, how do we handle that? How are we going to handle that? Um, I think we should be Biblically uh, based in our expression uh, of how we handle uh, handle this, because people have all sorts of methods and means to deal with persecution. Um, We have seen in our current state of affairs, people are glomming are you know looking to glom onto uh, politics, um, looking to glom onto certain powers. And of course, the art of persuasion—meaning I can I can yell loud enough to change your mind. I, I, uh, and how many of that? How how many of that of you have found that to work with, with others? I, I I haven't found that. Um, but what is it? What is what is revelation? What does the rest of Scripture actually tell us? The method we should employ as Christians. Well, it's really none of those things. It's really simply a witness. It's, it's a witness to Christ. Um, in G.K. Beale's book, in his section, Start Beginning on Revelation, here's what he says, and I think it's very wise that we take into our heart. He says, The church universal is called to maintain a faithful witness in the midst of persecution, following in the footsteps of the Lamb who died to free them from their sins. Having conquered through faith, they are promised the blessing of eternal life in the presence of God in the new heaven and in the new earth, all with the purpose that they will worship him and that he he receive the glory forever. What we see consistently in Scripture is uh, a people called to put their eyes on the Messiah and to endure and to be a witness and employ gospel methods, gospel methods. And I think it's really important to remember that in the book of Revelation, before we see a lion securing ultimate and final victory, because that's the picture we have at the end of the book, it's so important that before we see a lion securing victory in the very end, what is the vision we have of Jesus? Well, we see a lamb, a lamb as though he had been slain. It's congruent. It's congruent with the, with the whole story. We see a sacrificial lamb. We see a, we see a God who would condescend to humanity and serve in silence and serve in suffering. I was watching, this is a little tidbit, I was watching this really crazy documentary uh, last, uh, yesterday. <laughs> John,
0: I laugh because Anthony has seen every movie and documentary known to man
2: ever. (laughs) It's not true. Close, (laughs) though. Close. But I was watching this documentary that focuses on the polarization of our current culture. And I'm not going to say, I'm not pointing you in any directions, but it is so intense and, and crazy. And one of the perspectives, one of the intense polarized perspectives, is an eschatomania perspective it's it means the end is everything and so this person wearing a hat that says jesus on it and um a shirt that's just has scripture pasted on the front of it is is screaming obscenities to the other side uh, of the of the uh, conversation or, or the argument not a conversation screaming obscenities and he says Jesus flipped tables, and, and, and that's it. <laughs> that's, he stopped there. He stopped there. And I said, well, did you, did you, did you forget that he, that he died? That he died? And, 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 and I think that's so important for us to hold on when we read Revelation. Jesus wants to see him still in a state of, of humility and condescension, as we get towards that final, last battle of victory, we, we can't lose sight of Christ who suffers because that's the method he employs to win hearts. That's how Jesus won me, and that's how Jesus won you. That's how Jesus saved all of us, by dying on a cross. We were compelled by that substitutionary atonement over our lives. We have to hold on to that to the very end of our last breath. It has to influence influence us and impact us. And if it doesn't, we have to go back to the drawing board and and repent. Um, So, yeah, Revelation is asking us, really, how are we going to view it? Because how we view it really is going to impact how we... Um, employ methods to communicate to the world around us. The world is always going to be antagonistic towards the church. We can't change that. We shouldn't try to change that. We serve a Savior who suffered and, 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 and we cannot think that that our Lord uh, would choose any other route because he didn't choose any other route. That 's the facts. So So guys, in terms of eschatology, freedom to have any position that you, that you want. That, you, that you, you feel the Spirit of God is com- compelling you to, to dig into and, and follow. That's fine. Any, any eschatological per- persuasion is fine. But it has to be congruent with the story of Scripture and especially with the Christ who has come to save us. It has to be congruent. If it departs, it's not really... Um, it's not really the the heart of God. One story, which God's people have always been a part of. And we're in that story. We're a part of that story. Now, I'm going to read a real quick, long... uh,
0: It's the longest quote yet.
2: Yeah, longest quote. Real quick. Real quick, long quote. But this quote from Echoes of Exodus, from um, Alistair Roberts and Andrew Wilson, really helps us understand the story that we've all been a part of, and that we're all a part of. What's going on in scripture when you, like, again, John wasn't completely accurate. People, people are, they, they think the Old Testament is either quoted 200 times or 1,000 times. That's, that's the kind of um, confusion that c- it comes with the interpretation of this book and the, and the distance there is in our understanding but here's the one thing, it's, and when it's, it's a surprise, there's one thing that all Christians agree upon in their her- hermeneutic of this book, their interpretation of the, this book. And I'm telling you, if, Chris, if Christians all agree on something, we should really pay attention to what that is. And what Christians agree upon in the book of Revelation is that it's referencing the Exodus. It's referencing the Exodus story. And so let me read this quote to you, and then I'll turn it over. To John again. It says every exodus in scripture is incomplete. This is fascinating. look Look at it all culminate. Look at the culmination, except the last one. The patriarchs leave the land and come back wealthy, but their descendants are enslaved. Moses leads the people out of Egypt, but they die in the wilderness. Joshua takes them into the land, but the Canaanites remain. David and Solomon secure the land and build the temple, but Israel divides. Exiles followed by return, but idolatry continues. Jesus goes into the depths and emerges victorious, but leaves when the conquest of the land has hardly started. The church marches out in the power of the Holy Spirit, but as the epistles clearly show, the church is still in the wilderness, awaiting its final rest, looking to the day when death of death and hell's destruction land me safe on Canaan's side. Every time we we think the melody is complete, there's a final complication— Another discordant note, Exodus but, Exodus but. Do you see, we are in the same story. We're in the same story. We're not in a different one. The same story just looks a little different. But we're God's people uh, traveling through the wilderness in exile, awaiting the final, final, final victory of our Savior. That's what Revelation says. That's what Revelation says.
0: And so what John's trying to do in beginning to to land this plane is, again, point God's people back to the fact that God is on the throne, he is transcendent. And that truth is to root them in the tribulation, the trials, the trouble of their lives, as they look forward to the day in which God is going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's the, the trajectory of the book. And there's plenty of wonderful weeds in the middle to get lost in. But that's the essence of the book. John writing to first century followers of Jesus saying, remember, it's not Nero who's on the throne. Mm-hmm. It's God. And he knows where you're at. He knows what you're facing. He knows the temptations of your life and heart. And he's with you and he's for you. So follow him, the Lamb of Who is slain? Because ultimately, this lamb will return as a lion and he will make all things new. As you read chapter 21 and 22, what you see is this new city that's brought about. It's kind of a a John's redo of Genesis 1 and 2 as he paints God, uh, this picture of God who judges sin and deals with it fully and finally and recreates this world without sin. Imagine that. A world without sin. Your own heart without sin. Come Lord Jesus, right? Yes, That's what we need. That's what we desire. And so we see the God who sees, who knows, who works, who welcomes, who purifies, who gathers, who redeems, who brings about ultimately justice and shalom with his people. Eugene Peterson says this, many people want to go to heaven the way they want to go to Florida. They think the weather will be an improvement and the people (laughs) decent, but the biblical heaven is not a nice environment far removed from the stress of hard city life. It is the invasion of the city by the city. We enter heaven not by escaping what we don't like, but by the sanctification of the place in which God has placed us. There's not so much as a hint of escapism in St. John's heaven. This is not a long, eternal weekend away from the responsibilities of employment and citizenship, but the intensification and healing of them. Heaven is formed out of the dirty streets and murderous alleys, adulterous bedrooms and corrupt courts, hypocritical synagogues and commercialized churches, thieving tax collectors and traitorous disciples. A
2: city, but now a holy city. Mm -hmm. So, to wrap it all up, and in an attempt to wrap up what we've attempted to do over the course of this year is see what the Bible is saying and be consistent with it. And and rather than me ramble a bunch, I just want to read to you uh, another final portion out of that book, Echoes of Exodus. Because, again, I think it really gathers the idea of what's happening with the people of God, not just in Revelation, but just throughout the course of human history. And, he's, and, and, I'll, and I'll pick up, he says, The Bible is a redemption story. It is a cosmic exodus stretching from Eden to the New Jerusalem. All the exodus, all the exodus narratives we have seen in this book, political, geographical, spiritual, liturgical, Are contained with a global one that only comes to completion at the return of Christ. So, if at times it has seemed like we are going around in circles, making bricks without straw, trapped in slavery to sin and death for century upon painful century, and crying out for someone to help us, that is because we have been. When Adam sinned, we left our homeland, fell into captivity, And I've been hoping to get back ever since. So have the oceans. So have the forests. Paul's teaching in Romans 8 is remarkable here. It's not just human beings who are awaiting redemption, but the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We are looking forward to the exodus of everything. When we left Exodus and headed into Egypt, we took the cedars and the swordfish and the puffins with us. The physical world over which we were given dominion suffered the consequences of exile and ruptured shalom. Like a woman in labor, creation as a whole is crying out in anguish, straining toward the day when her labor pains will be over and the new creation will break out from inside the old. And when our true and better Joshua returns to lead us across the Jordan, creation will come too. We will rise up from the riverbed, followed by a multicolored menagerie of flora and fauna, like a latter-day Noah emerging from the depths and blinking at the brightness to find that the waters have receded and there is no longer any sea. There is a new heaven and a new earth, not just a new Jerusalem. The labor pains were worth it. Paul was right. The weight of glory makes our light and momentary afflictions seem trivial. Tolkien was right. Everything sad has become untrue. Lewis was right. The dream has ended, and this is the morning. Dostoevsky was right. In the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they have shed, that it, it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. In other words, one day, we're going to finally arrive at the glorious end of this story. And I think what a privilege and an honor to live within it and be found by a God who loves us in the midst of it. I'll, quote, I'll, I'll close with uh, Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. It says, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are so kind to John and I as we attempt to teach Revelation in this fashion. And in fact, thank you that you've been so kind to us as we've attempted to teach this, and, and other teachers, as we've attempted to teach the entire Bible in a year. And God, we know that we have not done you justice. We know that we have not given perfect clarity uh, around the person and work of Jesus Christ. But here's the confidence that we have. We have stepped out in faith to trust your word. And we have, we have with the best of us, the best of, of what we've had, we've, we have elevated your son and made uh, everything we can uh, possible uh, about him. And here's the good news, God, that we take deep into our hearts, that your Spirit is at work in our hearts and in our minds, giving us a beautiful, a beautiful vision of your Son as we continue to follow him. And so, Jesus, we pray that as we see you in this new year, that you'd continue to delight our hearts and our minds and our imaginations, capture us with your person and work. Uh, I pray that we would never think we need to grow beyond uh, s- just dwelling on uh, who you are. May we never depart from the chorus of heaven that says, "Holy, holy, holy, Lord God Almighty, who was and is uh, and is to come." Jesus, come quickly, and until until you do, until you return, we we we. We join that chorus. We love you, and we pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen.